everybody and welcome to Podversations, the new lecture podcast format powered by the University of East London, where two academics discuss the latest trends in communication and media transformations. My name is Valentina Signorelli. I'm the course leader for the BA Media and Communication here at UEL, and I'm also a transmedia director and producer. Today, this episode will focus on the impact of COVID-19 on the sports industry. And please let me introduce our guest speaker, Alan Pauli, Senior Lecturer and Joint Programme Leader for the BA Sports Journalism here at UEL. Welcome, Adam. Hi there. Good afternoon. Uh, before we start, Adam, can you please tell us a bit more about yourself, your background, what, what were you doing before joining UEL and why you became an expert of sports journalism and sports communication in, in general? Um, well, thank you for that glowing description about an expert. I hope I live up to that description. Um, uh, my background is as a sports journalist. That's what I trained uh, when I left university and it's what I've spent the bulk of my career in mm -hmm. on and off for the last... Uh, 30 years now, um, and I was introduced to um, academia and uh, teaching at university by teaching practical sessions like a variety of colleges and institutions. So joining colleagues who I'd worked with before in the sports industry and in sports media industry and uh, teaching practical lessons on the basics of sports journalism, how to do match reports, that kind of thing. Um, found that I really enjoyed it, found I really enjoyed engaging with students and that kind of like work started to grow from there. Um, I joined UEL uh, five years ago initially just as a guest lecturer doing similar things. Um, loved the place, loved the students and um, there were more opportunities arose to in the end with my colleague um, Deccan Apogee who comes from a similar media background. Uh, we became joint course leaders of the programme two years ago. Okay. Um, thank you for introducing yourself a bit more. So before we start, I'd like to uh, provide a bit of context with the main terminology that we're going to use. I think that, you know, defining the key terms is always useful because especially when it comes to media and communication in, in general, we're so exposed to many key terms that we take for granted, but actually they're very complex and they, they carry with them very complex effect on, on society. So the main two key terms for today are, of course, COVID-19 and sports industry <laughs> as well. So, I mean, it's quite... COVID-19 is quite self-explanatory for the time our students will be listening to, <laughs> to this podcast. But uh, just a, a quick recap for those who missed <laughs> the pandemic. Um, I, I'm going to quote the information that I found on the official websites for uh, the World Health Organization, uh, where basically... Uh, contains all the, not just all the information about the virus and the pandemic in general, but also all the statistics. So it's a very important website to, to consult anytime we need to provide information about COVID-19, um, the virus or, um, or the disease. So uh, what we can find there is that according to the ICTV, which is the International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses, um, the ICTV announced the severe acute respir respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, uh, which is also known as SARS-CoV-2. And they used it as the name of the new virus for the first time on the 11th of February 2020. This name was chosen because the virus is genetically related to the coronavirus, the other coronavirus responsible for the SARS outbreak of 2003. 
uh, well related, the two viruses are are different. So there are genetic similarities, but there, as we know, the uh, new coronavirus is different. Um, the World Health Organization announced COVID-19 as the name of this new disease on February 11th, 2020. So basically on the same day, following the guidelines previously developed with the World Organization for Animal Health, OIE, and the Food and Agriculture Organization of the uh, United Nations, which is the FAO. Um, so basically they are uh, using two different terms, one for the virus and one for, uh, for the disease. Uh, in particular, if we look at what kind of name the World Health Organization uses for the virus, uh, they decided to uh, to evaluate the risks associated with using the specific terms in terms of uh, mass communication. So what, what they try to evaluate the potential negative impact that using one label or another and one name or another could bring upon people around the world. So from a risk communications perspective, using the name SARS could have unintended consequences in terms of creating unnecessary fear for some populations, especially in Asia, which was worst affected by, by the SARS outbreak in 2003, so the uh, genetically correlated uh, or similar uh, virus that was um, that caused a, an epidemic in 2003. So they decided not to use SARS <laughs> or SARS-CoV-2 as the main term in, in mainstream media to avoid um, a negative impact uh, around the world and especially upon uh, some population in Asia. So that's why for these reasons, among others, the World Health Organization has begun referring to the virus as, and I quote, the virus responsible for COVID-19 or the COVID-19 virus when communicating with the public. Neither of these designations are, are intended as replacements for the official name of the virus as agreed by the ICTV. So meaning the, the virus is still uh, officially registered as SARS-CoV-2, but the World Health Organization encourages everyone in the, related to the media industries or those who are using social media to use the term um, COVID-19 in relation to, to the, the disease. Material published before the virus was officially named will not be updated unless necessary in order to avoid confusion. So everything that was produced and published before the 11th of February 2020 still uses the, um, the virus name, the official virus label. But from the 11th of February 2020, the World Health Organization encouraged everyone in the media and communication industry to use COVID-19 as the main uh, term. So uh, when I was drafting the outline for this session, it was the 4th of September 2020, which at the moment, right now, it's just a few days ago, but yeah. actually when students <laughs> will be listening to this, it will be at least a month later. The latest World Health Organization data shows over 26 million confirmed cases. 864,618 confirmed deaths, 216 countries in the world that are recognized, countries as recognized by the United Nations. So as we could see, that's why we refer to the COVID-19 as a proper pandemic, because it's affecting basically all territories around the world. Um, and the uh, deaths that are registered are the ones that are com uh, officially confirmed as 
having contracted the virus. So potentially we know that the numbers of not just the deaths, but also the active cases at the moment and in their past were much higher, yet undocumented. So I was interested in designing a session that was not exclusively related to the impact of COVID-19 on, you know, the <laughs> on our health. I, I wanted to shift the perspective outside the just the medical lens, which has been particularly overwhelming for each of us in the past few months. Mm. So that's why I was thinking about the sports industry, because I thought it was it was very interesting to see uh, as, as sports industry is the global <laughs> industry that involves um, different athletes from different countries at the same time all over the world and different media industries at the same time that are focusing on on sports. That's why I wanted to, to discuss with you the impact of COVID-19 on the sports industries. But before doing that, I would like to ask you your definition of sports industry. <laughs> How would, would we define sports industry? Um, the sports industry is all things to all people, but I think generally we can take it to mean organised tends to be professional sport um, uh, in a domestic setting and also into a global and international setting as well. The organisation of sport, the codification of sport, the, the application of rules and regulations to sport grew up from, um, really you're talking about in the 19th century, um, where games were played, they were traditional mm -hmm. games. And then what happened is that when you have codification and organisation, almost from that then you get the emergence of the sports industry uh, because regulation, codification, organisation requires some kind of financial structure around it. And that leads to professionalism and that spawns like the, the mm -hmm. actual sports industry. A lot of it, interestingly, based on gambling. Um, the reason why sports tend to be organised and codified is because people risk money on them on the outcome. So therefore, everyone needs to know what the rules are so that everything is fair. Um, since then, you know, it's been one of the great growth industries in the leisure sector, um, obviously led by football, soccer, uh, which is preeminent in that regard. Um, but it's now come to mean not just the sports and the games that, that themselves are played, but all the industries and all the settings related to it. So you're talking about media, sponsorship, advertising, promotions, leisure, transport, catering, all these kind of things, all these other related industries that feed into it really could define, if you like, that umbrella term of the sports industry. Okay, and in fact, when it comes to assessing the impact of a pandemic on the world economics, uh, it's always particularly tough. Uh, and it's even tougher for us right now because we're still not out of it. the pandemic is still on. Sure. So we cannot evaluate the impact and the effects entirely if we were even able to do it yeah. <laughs> in the future. But <laughs> so at the moment, it's particularly tough. Uh, but if we take a look at the data for the sports industries, uh, though, some recent reports can shed a light on this impact in some in some form. And can you please tell us a bit more about about this? Um, well, uh, the one of the most obvious impacts has been on the lack of um, spectator participation in sport. Um, there's an old saying that sport without fans is nothing and um, that theory has been put severely to the test during the era of COVID-19 um, because not only was uh, sport effectively forced to, to shut its doors and not take place, but even when it was able to resume due to the uh, restrictions of uh, COVID-19, um, supporters weren't allowed to 
come into stadiums, into arenas, et cetera, et cetera. So that has had a, a very visible impact on, on the sport. We've all seen the football matches that have been taking place in front of empty stadiums and the lack of atmosphere and the the uh, need, if you like, to create a false atmosphere by using recorded sounds of supporters in order to try and uh, establish some kind of make-believe impression of sport as it used to be. Um, but its impact on the sports industry is absolutely severe. Um, you know, it's it's uh, presents an existential, potentially existential crisis. Um, to professional sport and the sports industry um, because without those fans coming through the turnstiles, coming through the gate, uh, buying merchandise, buying um, food and drink at stadia and things like that, um, the sports industry is losing you know, one of its most fundament fundamental income streams, revenue streams. The reaction to that has been varied across whatever the, the sports setting is, um, but to give the example again of, of domestic football in the UK, um, is that the clubs and the organising bodies reached agreement with the broadcasters, existing broadcasters, to honour their fixture commitments for last season. Um, and that was absolutely crucial. If the clubs and the organising bodies had not been able to do that, there was a, a theory that some of these clubs could have gone out of business. Um, and, you know, there is still a threat, particularly if you go lower down the levels um, where clubs are going to be very vulnerable to this. So they had to get their fixture lists completed in order not to have any penalties, in order not have to pay back any money of the, the TV revenues that they'd received. And, and they're doing that now for the coming season. Um, I think it is important to note the difference between the elite and the more kind of like grassroots level. The further you go down the pyramid, not just of football, but really of kind of any organised sport, um, the presence of spectators is more and more important. The value of the TV deals really comes at the top of the professional game and that declines as you go down the leagues. So that therefore means that the, the revenue that clubs and organisations make from spectators paying to come and watch that, those games are even more crucial. Um, I mentioned about an existential crisis, probably not so much for the elite level of sport, but certainly a grassroots level, um, it, is, it is under threat. Its very existence is under threat. Yeah, and in fact, there are quite a number of examples of the practical implications uh, that the pandemic played on, on the sports industry in the past few weeks. I selected a couple of examples that I would like to comment sure. <laughs> with you that I found particularly interesting, uh, not just in terms of the, the uh, chain reactions that um, that happened <laughs> to, to, to the specific sports industry during the pandemic, but mm -hmm. I was really interested in exploring the actual changes and the to the to the usual sports format that we would see uh on on tv or the or the change of schedule and dynamics that i i found particularly interesting the first one is the 2019 and 2020 UEFA champions league finals so again soccer football was paris saint germain against uh bayern munich which was then won by bayern munich uh, which took place uh, on August 23rd, uh, and the, the actual date was postponed uh, up until August 23rd due to uh, due to the pandemic. Whilst at the same time, the qualifying tournament for the following season, meaning 2020-2021, actually started on August the 8th. 
So that was the moment where the the, the Champions League final was <laughs> taking place mm -hmm. a couple of weeks after the qualifying tournaments for the following season, yeah. and that's something unprecedented in the in the um, uh, soccer and football industry, I would say. Uh, what do you think about? this example from the perspective of a sports journalist, for yeah, instance. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating <laughs> example like, and a really, really good example of, of the disruption um, that's been caused to sport. Um, that's going to carry on. Um, the, you know, the domestic and international football seasons are already underway and the calendar is pretty much booked up for the next year. Um, which presents all kinds of potential issues and problems. Um, for one, about overexertion of, of athletes, of players, um, that there are the risk of injuries. And you're talking about extremely valuable assets here. Um, so that's causing like significant concern. Um, there's significant concern as well and, and doubt about the quality of the, the product that's going to be produced because it is ultimately a product that's produced. Um, how is that going to be impacted by the the sheer regularity of games? I think at one stage there's going to be a couple of months through the winter where um, players and teams in football, for example, will be playing up to four games a week, yeah. um, which is which presents all kinds of issues and all kinds of potential problems. So we'll have to see how that pans out. Um, but again, it's being driven by the need to fulfil contractual obligations, commitments to yeah. broadcasters, commitments to organising bodies, because we have, you know, the major international competitions coming next summer, which got delayed from the previous summer. Also, what happens is with international sports, they compete against each other and they're competing against each other for very valuable airtime and radio time and newsprint time, media time. Um, and when that becomes congested, it's more difficult for that sport to um, have its singular individual profile and mm. literally to get in front of enough people's eyes yeah. and ears to be noticed. So there's a concern there about the potential backlog of the scheduling of sports and that all these sports then are going to be taking place at the same time and going to be competing against each other. Uh, I mean, you know, have a look at example of things like tennis, which effectively had to cancel its uh, Grand Slam season, or at least postpone them and move them back. Olympics, Olympics the Olympics—that's well. yeah. the big one. You know, the Olympics is still, um, in many respects, it depends what kind of measure that you you apply to it, but it's still regarded as the premium global sporting event um, that takes place in the global sporting calendar. Um, obviously, that's had had to be put back a year. And surrounding that is all the uncertainty. We don't know where we're going to be with COVID-19. At the moment, this is what the sports industry is planning to do. But as we've all seen with COVID-19, it's a very volatile situation. Um, the restrictions uh, that apply in the UK, for example, have altered just last night, uh, mm -hmm. literally breaking news where there was a reduction in the um, numbers of people that could congregate together. That's going to have a big impact on sport. Yeah. There was an idea that we were going to have a phased reintroduction of spectators being allowed back into grounds and into stadia. Very limited to start off with fitting in with the COVID-19 social distancing rules that applied then that's gone out the window. Um, so we're back to square one, really, where sports aren't going to be able to admit spectators. Um, so 
it's a very unpredictable, very volatile yeah. situation. Yeah. Another key example, I would say, possibly in my view, uh, the most important example of how the sports industry and the global sports industry has been revolutionized in the past few weeks is the NBA bubble. So what happened to the NBA, for instance? So uh, for those who are not familiar with the American NBA season uh, or with the term NBA 2020 NBA bubble, which is also known as the Disney bubble or the Orlando bubble, it's basically the term... um, that uh, defines the isolation zone at Walt Disney World in Bay Lake, Florida, near Orlando, and that's why it's also uh, known as Orlando Bubble, that was created by the NBA um, to protect its players from the COVID-19 pandemic during the final eight games of the 2019-2020 season Mm -hmm. and throughout the 2020 NBA playoff, which means in simpler terms, that they decided to relocate <laughs> the whole NBA to Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was happening <laughs> in practice. So the day, in, in, in synthesis, the games were initially suspended in March 2020 uh, when the pandemic became more and more evident in the U.S. So the way the, the virus um, has spread in the past few months has been particularly inconsistent in different countries. But then uh, March was the big uh, month around the world, including the U.S. So the games were initially suspended in in March 2020. And then uh, on June the 4th, the NBA approved the plan to resume the season at Disney World, uh, inviting the 22 out of the 30 teams that were within six games of a playoff spot when the season was suspended. So 22 teams were relocated, they were forced to relocate um, uh, in Disney World (laughs) in Florida. So the games were scheduled to be held behind closed doors, as you mentioned, so no public, no members of the public were allowed, and they took place at the SPN Wide World of Sports Complex, and the teams, all teams, were staying uh, at Disney World hotels. Uh, According to Sports Illustrated, the bubble cost $170 million, and all this money was invested by the NBA. Um, After playing three exhibition um, scrimmages inside the bubble from July the 22nd to July the 28th, so over the summer, the invited teams each begin playing the eighth additional regular season games to determine playoff playoff seeding on July the 30th. Uh, the 2020 NBA playoffs then began on August 17th, the 17th, and the 2020 NBA finals uh, is scheduled to begin on September the 30th, so in three weeks from uh, from the time when we are recording. Uh, so no one were were not only allowed to to watch the games uh, in the first person, but also all the family members and those who are and all families and people who n- know the <laughs> the NBA players were allowed to 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 meet them. So uh, of course we're talking about people who earn millions of dollars every year, uh, but then that was kind of a social experiment in terms of dealing with the team. So they were relocated into Disney World. Um, and as, as a result, one of the main marketing and advertising strategies that were developed, especially as they were in Disney World, were to partner up with Disney World as, as a brand, as a franchise, and to revolutionize and create a, a limited edition series of, you know, um, 
uh, of uniforms and all the main merchandise uh, gravitating around the, the teams. So it's probably one of the biggest and fastest rebranding strategies in the sports industry. Uh, so NBA players are still wearing Disney-themed NBA uniforms. For instance, uh, the, I picked up the two that I like the most. So the New York Knicks are uh, wearing uni uh, uniforms inspired by Finding Nemo. <laughs> and the Miami Heat, they are featuring the Little Mermaid <laughs> on their uniforms. Um, yeah, so what can you tell us about this, what's your impression as a sports journalist? It's, it's fascinating. It's a really, really interesting case study. Um, there's there's a lot to be said about um, the peculiar peculiarities and uh, specifics about American sport that's a little bit different to how it's organised in other territories, particularly in Europe. Um, most obviously the franchise system, uh, whereby... Uh, teams are owned by businesses and not necessarily rooted in communities. That's very different to kind of like the European model of sport. Um, so, you know, most famously, the example in American sport is in, in baseball, where uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers um, moved not just out from New York, but right across the country and set up home in, in Los Angeles. So that's a kind of, you know, very kind of uh, extreme illustration about almost like the fluid commercial nature of American franchise sporting system. It lends itself much more to that kind of model. So if any sport in any country was going to uh, embark on that kind of venture of yeah. going to Disneyland, it probably would be <laughs> the NBA. Um, uh, really interesting development, uh, very close ties already existing with um, uh, multinational corporations like Disney, ESPN, which I think is still majority owned by uh, Disney. Um, uh, so you get that kind of confluence of when we talk about the sports industry, we're talking about sport, media and business all coming together. One, and that's a really good example of that taking place this year in Florida. Um uh, the NBA has really forged ahead in recent years when we talk about international sports competing against each other. The NBA in the last couple of years, I think I'm right in saying, it's topped the wages chart. Yeah. So it used to be the English Premier League dominated that, but the NBA have renegotiated contracts in recent years, massive TV deals, huge sponsorship deals with the big brands like Nike and Adidas, etc., that's led to a really like you know strong revenue increase and has enabled them to lead the field in terms of player wages. So that in turn raises the profile, yeah. raises the popularity. The NBA's got big ambitions to, to spread its brand around the world, yeah. talking about setting up franchises in Europe, possibly in Britain, uh, putting on games here, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So its tie-up with Disney at the time of COVID-19 is really interesting thinking yeah. on their part and a really interesting strategy. And especially if we think that also the Black Lives Matter movement Absolutely. Was, and the protests were taking place in the same weeks yeah. and the NBA is one of the main industries that do support uh, Black Lives Matter. So it was peculiar to also see the type of um, supporting actions that the players were doing in for Disney sure, World. for sure. Um, I, I would hazard a guess and say that when they were drawing up the plan for the the for the Disney-a-thon uh, <laughs> showdown, like with all the NBA teams, that they weren't factoring in that Black Lives Matter. They yeah. weren't. That wasn't part of their consideration. But I think it's very interesting to see how they've handled it. Um, it's been driven by the players. It's been driven by the players themselves. 
and the franchises, the owners, the organisers, you know, the governing bodies have reacted to it. Uh, and in contrast with some other sports, I think they've been quite nimble on their feet. They've recognised a moment in time, they've recognised a movement and they've made probably what is quite a cynical calculation, arguably, um, uh, at the worst. But maybe, you know, you, you could say that credit to them that they've, they've recognised this and they're genuine about it. But either way, um, they've, if you like, um, uh, been able to introduce it into their sport and to accommodate it, if that's the right word to use as well. Um, there was uh, obviously some games were called off in the NBA. Um, I think that really focused minds on the owners of the clubs and uh, the franchises and the organising body about they need to deal with the players and they need to listen to their concerns. Um, so it's a kind of good object lesson, actually, in how, how a sport can not only cope with COVID-19, how it can steal a march on its competitors, but yeah. how it can react quite nimbly to changing circumstances that were unpredictable, namely the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. As the um, the athletes and the teams were basically self-isolating inside this bubble, social media were a big part of their everyday lives as uh, they have been for each of us around the world. Yeah. Um, I found this... Um, piece of information that I'm now quoting from ESPN's Malika Andrews uh, on the Hoop Collective podcast. She um, summarizes what, what are the main key points of the life inside of the bubble in, in, in general, and especially in relation to food. The whole food in, industry has become at the center of our attention uh, worldwide during the COVID-19 uh, era because of, you know, um, adjustments in production and consumption mm -hmm. uh, practices. So uh, when it comes to food, it became a very uh, trending topic uh, in the bubble as well. So Malika Andrews um, mentions that uh, the athletes inside the bubble have numerous food options left at their door three times a day. So they were not even meeting uh, for lunch or for dinner. So 8 a.m., 12 p.m. and 6 p.m. So instead of asking each person what would they like, the staff would just give them every option to avoid contaminate, uh, contaminating their food. So that was another format, <laughs> life format, that was that had to be, uh, to be readjusted. And uh, I'm now quoting. So during the required quarantine period, when teams first arrived to the NBA campus at Orlando, meals are delivered directly to hotel rooms. Uh, each of the 22 NBA teams were paired with a Disney culinary team who meets with the NBA team's nutritionists regularly to create menus to support specific team needs. After clearing uh, quarantine, players will also have access to various restaurants on campus and delivery options to choose from. Players will receive three meals a day and four meals on game days. So they're eating one extra meal on game days. There is never a shortage of food options. Players can always request additional food by speaking with their team nutritionists. This is the official statement from the NBA, but then uh, reality was a bit different from if we... Um, take a look at uh, the athletes' social media. So there were some positive reactions and comments on that. If we think about uh, one of the most popular posts from uh, Enes Kanter from Boston Celtics, posting a picture of what he was eating with the plastic bags, 
package all around, uh, tweeting our first meal in the bubble in Orlando. We got steak, greens, sweet potato, chips, fruit, some cheese, bread, salad, and some milk. I actually like it a lot. Not bad. Thank you. Mm. But that wasn't the same for all athletes and NBA. <laughs> so that's why that became one of the trending, food became one of the main trending topic because people from around the world that were self-isolating themselves were posting pictures of what they were eating. So it was a form of engagement. They um, basically uh, exceeded just the sports industry itself. So it was a way for people to uh, to, to just connect sure. uh, with each other. So what are your thoughts yeah. about this type of serving <laughs> food format in the bubble? It's interesting, actually, because that, that kind of does take place in sport ordinarily, um, almost under the radar. Um, I was lucky a couple of years ago, I got to make a trip to the Etihad complex in Manchester, which is the home of Manchester City. And it's an extraordinary facility, um, huge amount of investment in what was a deprived area of East Manchester, you know, hell of a lot of money that's gone in there, um, basically invested by the new owners who are connected to the ruling family in the United Arab Emirates in Abu Dhabi. Um, and on the tour that we were given of the, the campus, um, there was a player centre and um, there were a couple of players that were coming, exiting from the building and they were carrying brown paper packages. And we asked our guide like, what was what was in the packages and he said, oh, that's their calorie controlled diet specific meals that are cooked for them and provided for them by the club. So everything is just an example about the absolute attention to detail, that kind of micromanagement of elite sports people. So it's interesting what we're getting with the NBA then. I don't know, you know, the absolute ins and outs of of their the nutritional controls and, and uh, interventions by their employers in terms of franchises. But I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of thing goes on normally. But what COVID-19 has done and the specific circumstances there and that need to engage with the with the public in a different way is that that's one of the avenues that they've looked at because it, it's instantly connectable. It's instantly recognisable by consumers, by, you know, uh, viewers and listeners. Um, maybe in a way that they can help to identify themselves like with the players as well. Mm -hmm. But I think it's quite clever social media activity and marketing. Um, I'm a cynic and I don't think these things happen naturally. I think mm -hmm. that there's probably a grand plan behind all this and, mm -hmm. and the, the players are being quite careful uh, and considered in what they're saying on social media. Yeah. Uh, besides the most popular examples that we have discussed today, and as you rightly mentioned, the sports industry across the world will not be the same uh, in the future, or at least in the near uh, future. Uh, we have also discussed uh, elements of the impact of COVID-19 on the sports industries. But thinking about the futures, what kind of main actions do you think governments should take into account uh, at a local level, at a national level, and at an international level? level when it comes to tracing or designing or redesigning the future of the sports industry? What is your view on that? It's a it's a really interesting question, which has got so many aspects to it, so many, so many facets. Um, there's something quite recently I thought that was quite interesting in terms of the development of sport and the relationship with media. Um, and that's a particular sport, which is cricket in the UK, 
um, but obviously sort of like in limited areas globally as well. Um, what's happened in the, the UK with cricket, um, all its fixtures were cancelled alongside with other sports. They weren't able to take place, but then eventually when restrictions allowed it, they were enabled to, to play games behind closed doors. So again, no paying spectators, very similar to football and other sports. But what the governing bodies and what the, the organisers did was quite clever is that they gained access to free-to-air terrestrial TV for the first time, I think, in about a dozen years. And uh, for the first time on the national broadcaster, on the BBC, for the first time in 17 years. Now, this is quite significant, potentially quite important, because one of the criticisms that's been levelled at cricket, both domestically and internationally, is that it's limiting its exposure. Uh, what it did in the past was that it signed very lucrative deals with satellite broadcasters and pay-per-view broadcasters, which increased its revenues, but cut off its um, uh, viewer base. Uh, you know, the numbers, the viewing figures for some cricket matches are tiny. Almost you can't measure them, they're so small. And there's been a lot of debate within the game about what the sport needs to do in order to thrive um, in the coming years. And one of the main suggestions that's been made is that those TV deals need to change. They need to put the product in front of more people's eyes in order for that product to, to prosper. Um, so it's very interesting. There was a couple of games recently that were screened on BBC and the viewing figures for them at the moment are very encouraging for the sport. They're, they are high viewing figures. Um, so that's just one example about how a sport might react to the specific circumstances and think, OK, what do we need to do here? There's an element of crisis management. That's what sports and sports clubs are doing because... They absolutely are in a crisis. Um, as I said, you know, their existence is potentially under threat. So they've got to think very, very hard about how they can engage, not just with their existing supporter base, but also with the supporters of tomorrow, not just the readers and the viewers, but the paying spectators who are actually going to pay ultimately to keep mm. these sports going. Um it is a fast-moving situation. Um, you will probably get situations like where clubs and organisations will look at what other sports are doing. So there's a bit of a similarity between the two examples that you looked at between the Champions League final, uh, where the remaining games were played in Portugal, effectively in one territory in order to get them completed, and also the NBA games um, at Disney World, which was taking that to a, a whole new level. So who knows, maybe we'll see kind of mini tournaments like that again in the future. Um, because of the unpredictability of the situation, and we don't know when paying customers are going to be allowed back in to watch sport, um, sports are going to have to be very imaginative in how they cope with it, how they engage, how they continue to attract new revenue streams, how to make themselves appealing to not just spectators, but to sponsors and advertisers yeah. who are a main form of revenue for them. Um, very interesting development just recently, uh, this week in fact, again in UK domestic football, where the Premier League has agreed to screen all games that are played in September on its existing TV channels. So mainly pay-per-view channels like Sky, BT Sport, Amazon Prime, but also making a few of these available to free-to-air broadcasters like the BBC as well. That came about primarily because of pressure from organised supporter groups, um, applying political pressure, 
getting in touch with MPs, exerting yeah. pressure on governments to try and intervene in order to make a positive change so that enables supporters to be able to watch their team. If they can't go in person, they're still able to watch it on TV. It gets as well to the heart of um, a kind of dilemma and a problem that's always been existing within the sports industry is how much of it is independent and organised and controlled by itself, how much of it uh, is organised and controlled by government and by politicians. Now, there are obviously certain rules applied that no one can avoid, things on, you know, like taxation, uh, obeying the law of the land, safety, security, and all those kind of things. But in terms of general governance, professional sport has been able to, to stand away from government. And governments, by and large, have been happy to let sport get on with mm -hmm. it. Um, it's interesting now what will happen. Uh, if the government, say, for example, in the UK, sees that that was a potential um, vote winner, effectively, to intervene and to enable supporters to watch their, their teams on on TV in September, that might encourage them to become more interventionist and and to uh, become more proactive in terms of their engagement with sport. Um, there's been a long running battle, again, domestically between the UK government and British football. Um, and quite often it's, it's veered into conflict. Um, there are all sorts of problems with the organization of, of football and uh, there are suggestions that the government has finally lost patience and will start intervening more directly. We shall have to see. And what about, you know, smaller clubs or local uh, community-based sports team that do not have uh, the luck and the economic power to partner up with a TV, for instance? Exactly, yeah. So I, sports is an everyday, almost an everyday activity for mm. for. Um, everyone in yeah. the world and sometimes community-based uh, teams or sports activities are fundamental for for communities to, to to stick together and also to to get to know and contribute to the community as well absolutely absolutely we've kind of come full circle when talking about the sports industry and where, how it started um well with we, we are kind of in a way where it started with teams at that level because they are community organizations they are rooted in their communities um, whatever the sport, whatever the level, but particularly at that grassroots level, um, they are going to find it really difficult to sustain themselves. And there are lots of reports, there's, there's lots of concerns that if they don't get paying spectators in through the gate, through the turnstiles soon, then a lot of them could potentially go out of business. Um, that said, those kind of clubs are very resourceful and very resilient. Um, economic problems are nothing new to them. They they constantly operate on a knife edge, even at the best of times. COVID-19 may push them over that edge into uh, potential liquidation and going out of business. But I expect that in some shape or form, they will re-emerge, perhaps even as, as more community-focused clubs, um, where they're not owned by individuals, by wealthy individuals, but they're owned by supporters coming together, perhaps in things like supporters' trusts or community organisations, maybe with the involvement of local government at that level. Um, so in one, in many respects, it's it's a bleak picture. Um, I think we have to bear in mind that, you know, sport and sports organisations and clubs by their nature are, are, are pretty tough. Um, so hopefully they'll be able to come through this and survive in some shape or form. 
And shifting the uh, the perspective towards our our students' perspective as young uh, or future journalists and fu- and young and future at the same time media experts, what mm-hmm. kind of recommendations would you give them to navigate these changes, in, even in these following months that will be crucial to understand the future of uh, the world economics <laughs> yeah, yeah. in general. Um, it, it's kind of usual rules apply is that we always say to, to our sports journalism students that while the technology may have changed, you know, the basic fundamentals of sports journalism haven't. It's about having an eye for a story and it's about getting out and talking to people. Now, in the area of COVID-19, that kind of like face-to-face interaction isn't isn't as easy as it once was or isn't as practical as it once was. Um, but nonetheless, there there is plenty of opportunity to still produce really good content, to find really good stories, even in the absence of sport taking place. Um, you know, we've got the, the issue that's been happening over the summer, for the bulk of the summer, is that sport ground to a halt. Well, sports journalism didn't ground to a halt. It wasn't the case that newspapers suddenly said, there's no sport taking place, so we're not going to have anything about sport. They found new stories and they found new ways to report on them. A lot of it was about how is sport going to cope with COVID-19? What is the future? What are clubs doing? What are organisations doing? How is this affecting recruitment and participation? And, And looking at a lot of those things that were taking place off the pitch, off the field, off the track, out of the arena. But nonetheless, you know, there was plenty of plenty of content still there. And that will remain the case, whatever happens. Um, so that's the sort of general advice to, to sports journalists is to keep that in mind, to keep thinking about stories, keep talking to people in order to, to get those stories and be able to tell them uh, in a good and constructive way. Um, I think also as well that it's, you know, the most significant consumers of the sports media are sports journalists themselves. It's about reading, watching, listening, um, see how the professionals are doing it, see what kind of stories are being told, using that as inspiration to create your own content and to create your own ideas. Um, because again, you know, that, that will never alter. If you've got a good original idea that will appeal to consumers, um, then you'll be able to tell that story in some shape or form. Um, And if you can't do it by conventional means within the conventional media industry, tell it yourself. You know, there's all kinds of opportunities now to do that, to be self-resourceful, to create your own YouTube channel, to create your own podcast series and things like that. Um, In in that respect, you know, as we tell our students, there's never been a better time to get into sports journalism and journalism in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they are very good <laughs> recommendations. So thank you for that. Uh, before we conclude, is there anything you'd like to to add? Um, I just think, yeah, for for anyone that's kind of uh, uh, listening and and watching, um, just be aware. Just just open your eyes and explore as much around this subject as you can. Um, uh, there's a wealth of material out there. There's a hell of a lot of reporting and it is dominating the news agendas in some ways, which arguably it's not been done correctly. Um, you know, there's a lot of the important materials being missed and maybe some of the important stories aren't being told either. But then again, that's where maybe you can find inspiration. Yeah. And if you feel that something isn't being done right by the conventional stuffy media, well, go for it. You try and tell that story. Okay, thank you very much for uh, 
for being with us today. Thank and you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.